Today's scripture reading comes from Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verses 1 through 29. A good name is better than a precious ointment, and the day of death, and the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This is also vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of the thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, For anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than those? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance and an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God, who can make straight what he has made crooked. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. In the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. In my vain life, I have seen everything. There is righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous. Do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand, for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. Surely surely there is not a righteous man on earth who who does good and never sins. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. All this I have tested by wisdom. I said I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been as far off and deep, very deep, who can find it? I turned my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. And I find something more better than death, the woman whose heart it snares and nests, and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all those I have not found. See, this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Well, thank you for being with us. If you're new, we go 
typically straight through books of the Bible. We've been in Ecclesiastes for some time, but we're a little over halfway done, and we're going to go in larger chunks here coming up, so it should go uh, pretty quickly. I'm going to pray and ask God to, uh, to speak to us this morning, so if you bow with me. Heavenly Father, we come before You, for You are worthy to be praised. We don't come bringing anything worthy in ourselves, Lord. We are not worthy in ourselves to stand before You, to be in Your presence, but You have made it possible through Your Son, Jesus Christ, and so we are here to praise that to praise Your goodness, to praise Your greatness, to praise Your generosity and Your grace. Lord, we come this morning expecting You to change us, to speak to our hearts. We don't come expecting You to change someone else or to speak to someone else, but to us, Lord. Let the Spirit stir in our hearts words of conviction, words of comfort, whatever it is You feel we need to hear. We come, Lord, I pray, with, with hearts with minds, with lives bowed humbly before You, acknowledging Your Lordship, desiring Your guidance, protection, and care. We come, Lord, confessing, though, that we are prideful. That we believe too often that we are wiser than we are, stronger than we are. And Lord, as our worlds and our life crumbles around us at times when storms rage, we are so apt to blame You. To blame You for our problems and not seek You for help. So forgive us, Lord. We desire to be forgiven. We desire to be cleansed. We desire a a right perspective, Lord. But more than that, we desire the power to obey, the power to pursue the things of Christ, the power to believe the truth, the power to live the truth, the power to wisely govern and navigate our lives through this empty world and to find meaning in all the meaninglessness. Lord, protect us from the world. Protect us from our own flesh, from the enemy that lies to us. And help us to discern Your voice as Your sheep. We're here, Lord, to receive Your truth. It is in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. So Ecclesiastes, at the end of last service, someone said, well, that was a real downer. So apologize if that's what happens to you, but that's not the intent. It's the word is the word and the impact is its impact, but I'll try to be more positive about what he says. But it is a record of something that is I guess difficult for us all, but real for us all. This book is the record of one man's search for meaning in life under the sun. A place where we all live. And we're halfway through the book. The first half of Ecclesiastes really dealt with the emptiness of everything. The substance or the vaporness, if you will, of everything. And in somewhat of a paradox, using all of the wisdom that Solomon received from the Lord, he foolishly seeks to determine whether anything in creation can fill the emptiness that all of us feel inside our hearts. So he puts everything he can into that box and he pursues every desire. And as king, with means and opportunity, he could do that. He could deny himself nothing and literally mean that he denied himself nothing. He indulged in every pleasure. He achieved every success, climbed every mountain possible that we could imagine. 
And after trying and accomplishing nearly everything anyone could try or accomplish, he concludes in the end that whatever paradise men can build without God is meaningless. It's all nothing. He writes to the younger generation and even making that statement that it's all nothing, we don't believe him. The younger you are, the older you are, you tend to start to agree with him. But the younger you are, you say, I don't know, if I had this, if I could accomplish that, if I had this opportunity, if I could experience this thing, if my life had gone this way instead of that way, I would find meaning. He's like, no. It's all empty under the sun apart from God. Last week we saw that he argued one of the worst things that can happen to somebody is to get everything they ever wanted and yet God doesn't give them the gift to enjoy it. That's what happened to him. And so the best summary for chapters 1-6 through is that life is meaningless, empty, brief, futile, vanity. All these words. And we go, wow, thanks Solomon. Like, Now what? So the second half of the book, the now, if you will, after describing, I think in very honest and real terms, conditions of life under the sun, after diagnosing what the problem is, which is basically man's heart, he now is going to begin to explain kind of how to live in such a way to find meaning in a meaningless world. Chapter 7 marks a little bit of a turning point in the book, and it's marked by a shift in writing style, at least in this particular chapter. The first verses of this chapter, if you've ever read the book of Proverbs, you'll see it sounds very familiar. It's largely written by Solomon as well. But the first verses, the first half of this chapter reads like something out of the book of Proverbs. It's a list of, of independently or Truth statements that could stand independently by themselves. And while Proverbs do just that, I believe Solomon is intending to express one kind of unified idea with all of these truth statements. And you can kind of pick that up as he repeats phrases, particular phrases, throughout the verses. And in this case, he uses the phrase better. This is better, and this is better. And better is this, and better is that. Essentially, Solomon has already concluded that everything in life is bad. And by that, he means that there really is no absolute good. There is no perfect. There is no best way to live. But what he's going to begin to explain is that there is a better There's a better way to live in what he describes as his vain life. And by that he means his brief, vaporish life on earth. He's going to teach us that some ways of living are definitely better than others. But he's also going to say that there isn't any one way, that no way actually saves you completely and fully from the emptiness of life under the stun. Son, He's going to show us that better, that better life is the wiser life, but that even the wisest men and women cannot escape the emptiness, and they have to learn to actually live 
in the emptiness with God. You can't fix the emptiness. You can't take away the emptiness. He's just saying, no, you actually have to live in the emptiness, and you can do that wisely with God. But there's a better way. So he begins in these first verses to kind of give, again, these proverbial statements about how to live wisely as opposed to foolishly. And the thing about it is that when someone is foolish or living foolishly or living wisely, it is actually probably best or most clearly revealed in their responses to certain experiences in life. And I would say the experience that for all of us makes life most meaningless, or at least feel meaningless in the moment, is death. When death and suffering come into your world, you suddenly go, what is this all about? What's the point? And how you respond to that moment reveals a lot about whether you're on the path of foolishness or the path that is better, which is wise. So he begins with Proverbs, beginning in verse 1, he says this, A good name is better than a precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of the morning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. So what is Solomon saying collectively with all these statements? Well, the first thing Solomon teaches us and is pushing us towards is this idea that character is more important than appearance. And he says that a man's good name is better than an expensive appearance or fragrance. Now, that might be a no-duh for you, but if you think about our culture and what it naturally kind of tempts us toward or pushes us toward, we have what I like to describe as a selfie-saturated culture. Right? The selfie is a fairly new invention that's taking pictures of yourself. My kids make fun of me because I am unable to take pictures of myself very well. I don't even know how to do it. My thumb always gets in the way. It's just a dumb thing. But some people are really good at it, right? They make some amazing photos of themselves. And in this kind of selfie, just take that idea where we are saturated by selfies, it becomes this breeding ground for narcissism. You go, what's narcissism? That's a big word. Well, simply narcissism is uh, the fixation with oneself especially with one's physical appearance or public perception. Now, I would argue that much of culture, many in here, many out there, many of us, give a lot of energy to making a certain appearance and a public perception, worrying about it, thinking about it, contributing to it. Now, the term originated from Greek mythology, from a guy named Narcissus. And Narcissus was this dude that fell in love with his own image reflected in a pool of water. And there's much to the story. You think about a guy falling in love with himself, thinking about himself, enamored with himself. And this is why Solomon says that a good name is better than a good fragrance, right? A good name can't be seen or smelled, if you will, like a good fragrance. It's about 
The heart versus the appearance. What's behind the eyes versus what's in front of the eyes. We have become, it seems, so enamored with how we smell before men that we are no longer too concerned with whether the aroma of our lives is pleasing to God. Everyone's got a smell, if you will. Now in part, we are more concerned with what we smell like, our fragrance to the world, because we are largely concerned with our lives under the sun more than anything. This is why Solomon says some very shocking statements, his better than statements. He says, death is better than birth. Funeral is better than a party. Sadness or sorrow is better than laughter. Wow, what a downer, Solomon. Death is better than birth. Funeral is better than a party. Sorrow is better than laughter. He uses death, right? This this experience, this, this moment of great suffering and pain to contrast the different ways to really approach life, either foolishly or wisely. Because it's interesting that even in the face of something as universally painful as death, and it is painful, you know perhaps personally if you've had loss in your family, if not, you will know someday. And when death comes to us, because it comes to us all in some form, some way, how we respond reveals something about what we believe and who we are behind the eyes. Now the fool in that moment never considers spiritual things. They don't even want to think about them. The fool does everything they can to avoid pain, to avoid sorrow, to stay away from it. Fools often live in the moment, but more than that, they live only for the moment, not thinking about the next moment. According to Solomon, the fool doesn't want to change. They, don't, they, don't, they like the way they are. They like the superficiality of life. That's evidenced by the fact that they will not even listen to rebuke, and they'll often laugh off a confrontation. When they're confronted... They don't think about their own character. They don't think about their heart. They don't think that something might be wrong with them. It's, what's wrong with you? Why would you be confronting me? (laughs) What's the big deal? Get over it. Relax. The fool, when it comes down to it, is only concerned with the body and never the soul. Never asking questions of the soul. Never asking what impact decisions have on the soul. Never thinking about deeper things. Even in the moment of death where you realize Life is pretty meaningless. And so they live for what Solomon describes the applause and the approval of men. And he says it's like uh, the cackling of fire under a pot. And so if you've ever had a campfire and you've taken some, some brush or some leaves or some paper and thrown the fiber and it just gets really big for a second and then quickly fades away, he says that's what the fool lives for. That moment, yeah! That's it. It's the highlights that don't last, that go away very quickly. In many ways, you know, the fool avoids the reality of life that Solomon's described. They don't want to think about the harshness of life. They don't want to think about the meaningless of life under the sun. And so it's almost as if they go through life 
And when difficult things happen or, or challenges come to them, they kind of put their fingers in the air and go, la, 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 let's go on to other things. You say, that's foolish. That's not the better way of living. That the better way of li- living is to actually step into that suffering and death. To step into that pain. See, that's what the wise do. The wise are who Solomon describes as the living who take it to heart. In that moment, that funeral or that difficulty, they start thinking about their soul. They start thinking about deeper questions. They start asking themselves you know, things beyond the surface. It's not that the wise never laugh or they never rejoice. It's that they do, though, take life seriously. And, and they look at life honestly. The wise live in pursuit of things greater than the good life. They actually want a meaningful life. And there is a difference. Unlike the fool, the wise person lives for the soul. Not in the moment, for every moment. They think about how their relationships impact the soul, how their jobs impact the soul, how their resources and things they use and impact every decision. How does this impact the soul? They go, that's kind of extreme. It's not. It's just below the surface. It's the place where meaning is found. Unlike the fool, the wise person approaches life with the end in view, right? Solomon's always talking about death and the day of death. And you go, well, why does he talk about it so much? It's not just to make us sad. It's to go, you should be living life with the end in view because tomorrow is not guaranteed. You should be thinking about the day of your death and be thinking about the vaporness of life before death is on your doorstep because it actually changes how you live before that day comes. Unlike the fool, the wise person, catch this, expects suffering. They don't desire suffering. They don't pursue suffering. It just doesn't surprise them. More than one psalm that goes through Ecclesiastes, like, you see the oppression, you see the broken. He's like, this shouldn't surprise you. But sometimes I think suffering can be devastating. I realize that. I'm not trying to make light of that. But I wonder if it's more devastating than it should be because we never expect it to happen. And so the wise goes, okay, I understand the world is broken. I understand that I am broken. And so when someone disappoints you or a certain situation feels you know, crushing or, or falls apart or disillusioned, like, well, I'm not totally shocked, though I still am sorrowful. Maybe I'm still angry. Unlike the fool, the wise doesn't avoid the house of mourning. They actually step into it. They realize, as Solomon has said, there's a time for mourning, there's a time for laughing, and getting those two seasons confused can be really devastating. This is the path to the better life. It's the path of wisdom that he's been trying to put forward for us. And he does just say that there's lots of things that can hinder this better life. There's lots of things that can stop living wisely and you can begin to live like a fool. He argues that the suffering of the world can, it's so strong and powerful and pervasive that it, it can drive even the wisest man to madness. It can make Men pridefully impatient. Right? How do you start being tempted to be foolish? You start reacting to everything and not responding. 
You start trying to fix it, being impatient, forgetting that one of the most common phrases and commands of the Lord in the Old Testament is wait. Wait. I like to wait. That's the path to foolishness. He talks about becoming angry. Now again, the Lord describes Himself as being slow to anger. Anger is not a bad thing. It is a good thing in the sense that the Lord uses to describe Himself, but we are very quick to anger. We get angry of situations, and that's the path to foolishness. Not that there aren't situations you ought to be angry at. He says that it even causes all the suffering in the world or the difficulties of life, or the emptiness of life, he says, it can cause us to believe that the former days were better. He says, and remember when the days passed, it was so much better than it is now. And he goes, it's not wisdom that tells you that. That's not wisdom talking. I don't know how many of us here live in the past. You live dwelling in the past, romantically imagining the past as you basically throw a pity party in the present, right? We must be careful not to sound like the Israelites who as they're walking in the wilderness with the presence of God, being fed by God Himself, going, oh guys, remember how awesome it was back in Egypt in slavery, right? It was so much better than it is now. And we objectively, like, are you are you nuts? But that's the path of foolishness. And it's something we can all fall onto. In other words, the reality of life under the sun, the harshness of life under the sun, can tempt even the wise man to try and escape. I need to get away. Because when life gets hard, because of suffering or death or whatever difficulty you might experience, the fool seeks distraction. The fool seeks escape. The fool wants to run away. The fool wants to ignore. And the wise actually steps in and looks up for help from God. Look at verse 13. The conclusion of the wise says, Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what He has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. In the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that would be after him. That is a troubling, powerful, amazing couple of verses. God has made both the day of prosperity and the day of adversity. God is the one who's made crooked, and God is the one who will make straight. See, all of life is lived under the sun, but not everyone actually lives under God under the sun. Only the wise, as they live under the sun, live under God. The fool works to fix the world by running from God or fighting Him. You know what the wise person does? The wise person accepts the world as it is and doesn't pretend it's something different than it is. The wise person receives the good and bad from God, trusting that He alone can straighten what He alone has made crooked and He will do in His way according to His timing because even the wisest men know their limitations. I'm reminded of Job. Job is an amazing story of a man who lost everything. Some imagine or, or scholars believe it's the first book actually ever written down in the Bible before Genesis where Moses was recording Genesis. In Job chapter 1, it, 
and two, it tells the story of Job had all this wealth, all this power, all this family, all this prestige, and he lost everything. One thing he didn't lose was his wife. And she was a piece of work. I often wonder if the devil just left her there as part of the punishment. I say that because of what she says in Job chapter 2. In Job chapter 2, he's suffering. He's in pain. He has lost more than we can probably imagine. And his wife said this, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. Like, thanks babe. Right? That really helps. And what this shows us is the response of the fool and the wise. Not the response of men and women or husbands. The fool and the wise. So the fool says, just be done. Curse God and die. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? Whoa. That's powerful. Not easy. Powerful. And wise. The better life is the wise life. Well, Solomon continues in verse 15, boldly declaring, in my vain life, in my empty life, in my brief life, I have seen everything. He then states that he has watched the life of the righteous and the wicked. And he's noticed something as he's gone about. He noticed that things seem kind of unfair. That the righteous die doing good and have horrible lives and the wicked thrive and have long lives. That's a harsh reality of our world. Like I'm doing my best to honor you, God, to be righteous and do what's right, and my life stinks. And this guy over here hates you, and he has a blessed life. And if you don't see that in life, I don't know where you're looking. But that's one of the harsh realities that Solomon said, like, yeah, this is, this is really bad. This is what makes life meaningless. At least life under the sun apart from God. So he then tells us something in response to that. He says, don't ruin your life, don't destroy your life by being too overly righteous or too overly wicked. You're like, well, that's like a weird thing to say. And admittedly, like a lot of Ecclesiastes, it is a little confusing. I know that people, maybe you don't imagine this, like I open up Ecclesiastes and we can like, <laughs> clearly I know what that means, right? It's not like that at all. You're like, what the snarf am I going to say this week, right? Because it's confusing. It is. But that's a lot like life. That's why I like this book. It's like, yeah, that's confusing, like my life is right now. So this is a little confusing because it can sound like Solomon's like, well, a reasonable amount of wickedness is okay. You know, it's okay to be a little sinful. Now, I don't think that's what he's doing. I think he's actually trying to help us live a meaningful life in the meaningless world, and he's trying to tell us stay away from extremes. And by extremes, I mean there's a lot of things that we call bad that not everyone calls bad, that you call bad that I may not call bad. And I'll dedicate my life to like, well, I'm not going to do that list of bad. 
Or the same things were good. Like, this is what good is. It's good to do. And I'm, I'm going to devote myself to doing good and only good and avoiding bad. And like, wait a second, how do I, who says that's good? Like, that's not even in the Bible necessarily. Like, and it gets kind of crazy. Like, avoid extremes. Whether you call it righteous or wicked. And I think at the heart of it, what Solomon is trying to warn us about is something that we maybe don't talk enough about. And that is that there's actually more than one way to build paradise apart from God. I've often talked about the two ditches on the road of life. One is best called the ditch of self-indulgence and the other is called the ditch of self-righteousness in my Bet as you've been in one or the other or swung between them both at different times in your life. And it's interesting, one ditch, we'll call it the ditch of the irreligious, just to use a term. And that represents those who build their life according to their own wisdom. What I think is best, what I want to do, the way that I think is right in my eyes that God says leads to death. But, there's another ditch that we also can fall into. I call it the religious death ditch. And that represents building a life with God's wisdom for myself. So really centered on me using God's terms. The self-indulgent end up making a God of creation and the self-righteous make a God of themselves. And you can guess what? Both are ways to avoid relationship with God. Basically, we avoid God by being either really bad or we avoid God by being really good. One says God is more about love, which tends to compromise His holiness. And one says, oh, the other, God is actually about holiness and they end up compromising His love. And you swing between these extremes, ultimately trying to save yourself. Solomon wants us to live wisely between these two. And in verse 18 he says, It's good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand, for the one who fears God shall come out from the both of them. See, the problem with both those approaches is that neither one actually fears God. He does say, though, wisdom gives us strength. Right? And so you can get to this place. It gives us strength. More than 10 rulers, like, okay, I just got to live wisely. I got to avoid extremes. I got to live under the fear of God. I'm going to find the path of wisdom. And what's interesting is that he does say wisdom does give you strength, it is a better way to live. But then he's going to say something else because, yes, wisdom makes you strong, but guess what? Newsflash, it doesn't make you less sinful. And just as Solomon kind of seems to be encouraging us, like, walk the path of wisdom. That's how I figured out all of life, and nothing bad will happen. It'll be glorious when anything bad does happen. He actually seems to tell us, yeah, walk the path of wisdom, but by the way, you're going to fail doing it. It reminds me of what Joshua said, if you've ever read the end of the book of Joshua. So if you know nothing about the book of Joshua, that is the leader after Moses, General Joshua, we call him, who leads this 
army and, and wipes out all the Canaanites and basically they take the promised land. They divide all the nations or the tribes, it should say. And at the end of Joshua, he's like kind of making a final speech to them about, all right, let's go forward together. And interestingly, it's very famous. You probably are familiar with it. In Joshua 24, he tells them, gathered all the Israelites, choose this day whom you're going to serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Right? I'm sure some of you have that above your fireplace. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Blessings upon you. Great saying, but I bet you didn't keep reading. It's really interesting. He says it again, right? Well, the people answer him. As for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. And people are like, yes, us too. He says, far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For it is the Lord our God who brought us out of fathers from the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who did this great thing. And so they're like, yes, we're going to serve the Lord too, just like you said you're going to do with your house, Joshua. And then what does Joshua say to the people? You're not able to serve the Lord. For he's a holy God. They go, what? You just told us, like, we're going to, he's like, yeah, you're not going to be able to do it. You're not strong enough. And there's an interesting kind of message in that, if you will, because Solomon tells us the same thing basically in verse 20. Not in the same words, but the same spirit. Where he's like, live wisely. This is the better way to live. Avoid extremes. Live under God. And he says this in verse 20, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Further says, Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. Okay, here's a little newsflash nugget for you. Ready? A lack of wisdom is not our problem. A lack of wisdom is not our problem. You can begin to read Solomon. You can begin to even kind of listen to his commands. Better is this and better than that. Better than this. Okay, I just got to live better. I just got to do better. Be better. Be gooder. And he goes like, yeah, you're a sinner. Because we, we lend towards these extreme kinds of living because we ultimately start to believe we can save ourselves that we can do it ourselves, that we can relieve that emptiness within us if we just live a certain kind of life under the sun. I just got to live wisely or I just got to avoid certain bads or just do certain goods. And if I do that, I will, I will survive and, and more than that, I'll thrive because the emptiness will go away. And Psalm's like, no. The truth is, no one's probably convinced that salvation and relief from emptiness is found in a life of wickedness, though they're tempted to believe that. But I think many of us could be convinced that you could find that life through righteousness. That we might be able to be good enough. And Solomon plainly says, there is no one good, not one. And we go, that's right. You can imagine a grandfather. And that's what Solomon is, speaking to this younger generation going, I've looked over all the earth and I can find no one who does good. And you're like, that's right, neither can I. They're all bad. 
right? And grandpa kind of just goes, I'm talking to you, right? It's easy to go like, yeah, the world's horrible. The world's broken. It's full of bad people. No one does good. You're like, whoa, 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 whoa. Very tempting for us to stop thinking about ourselves and start thinking about someone else. And this is why I think he, he warns us about that. I don't think he wants us to intensify our efforts to be good or to be wise, but I think he wants us to be humble. He warns us, like, don't pay too much attention to what other people say because you might end up hearing something bad about yourself. And, and in doing that, it's almost as if Solomon kind of steps out of the, of the book for a second and seems to whisper like, hey, don't, don't be deceived. You're not as good as you think you are. And not because of what that person said about you, but because of what you've actually said about others. You are just as sinful, so be humble. Solomon was super wise. But what he's beginning to reveal to us, like, yeah, wise and wisdom, kind of wise living is a better life, but ultimately it still doesn't fix anything. Even if wisdom can make your life better, it can't change the heart, which is actually the problem. And both ditches are attempts to try and do just that. It's, it's a self-dependent, self-reliant, self-improvement system, but there's a third way in between, and that's a life that's actually dependent on God. In part, that's really what living in fear of God is. It's not just like, I want you, God. It's like, oh, no, I have to have you, God. I can't do it on my own. I can't even follow your commands on my own. I may have the desire because my spirit is willing, but my flesh is weak. I'm not as strong as I think I am. I'm not as smart as I think I am. Even if I know all of your wisdom, I have the desire to obey it. I fall. Sin prevents us from having that kind of relationship. And you know what it does, actually? We spend most of our days uh, days blaming God for our problems rather than asking Him for help. If God had, if you would have done this, if you would have showed up here, if you would have fixed that, if you would have brought that, if you would have done this. This is why the third way that I'm talking about doesn't come from wisdom. It doesn't come from us figuring it out. It comes actually from God's revelation. In the final verses, Solomon writes this, all I have tested by wisdom, I said, I will be wise, but it is far from me. Here he said there, I'll be wise, but he didn't get there. He continues, that which has been far off and deep, very deep, who can find it? I turn my heart to know and search out and seek wisdom in the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. And I find something more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters, he who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Verse 27, Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to, find, to another to find the scheme of things which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among of these I have not found. And all the ladies went, what? Right? Oh, let's see what he does with this one. This will be good. And lots of people ask me, what are you going to say about them? I don't, I don't know. <laughs> it's interesting to, to think about all the things Solomon says, I found this and I didn't find this. I found this and I didn't find this. And the things he found are very small. 
This guy had more wisdom than anybody under Jesus. First thing he talks about is a deep wisdom. It reminds me, if you've ever read Chronicles of Narnia, talk about the deep magic. And the deep magic and the deep wisdom is that thing that exists beyond creation, that even only the Creator knows that really isn't attainable by man. As wise as Solomon was, he wasn't wise enough. Wisdom itself is empty. Wisdom cannot, it can make things better, but it can't actually save you. And the second thing he talks about is the snare of a particular kind of woman. And you need to read that more of a metaphor or an image because he's describing a similar woman that he wrote about in his Proverbs, in the book of Proverbs. It sounds like this adulterous woman that he describes. There's the adulterous woman in Proverbs. And this woman really represents the enemy of wisdom. Tempting the simpleton who is supposed to be pursuing wisdom with lies and trying to captivate him with false truth. Those who seek to please God are those who choose wisdom and escape, while those who seek only to please themselves fall in their trap. But then he says something else, addressing not only the lack of wisdom in himself, he says, The problem is with all men and women. And he says not only has he not found wisdom himself, but he hasn't found anyone who is wise. And he says he hasn't found a single wise woman at all, and he has only found one-tenth of one percent of all the men he's met. Which isn't a lot, in case you're wondering. So, as an aside... Because I think you have to address what he says here. Carefully, the Word of God, every word of the Bible is inspired by God. It is God-inspired, but I would argue it's not God-approved. And by that, I mean this. Some Scriptures are descriptive, right? The devil speaks lies that are recorded in Scripture. And God isn't going, yay, I believe in that, right? We're learning from that description. Then some scriptures is prescriptive, like it's very clear commands. We are supposed to do this. This is very God's expressed will and that kind of thing. Some scriptures reveal something about God, His character, His ways, who He is. And some reveal stuff about the heart of men, directly and often implicitly. So as we look at this text, some have been tempted to go, God must be a misogynist. Because Solomon is speaking on his behalf. And I would say, no, God is not misogynistic. Jesus affirms the equality, as does all the Scriptures, and the value of women throughout the Gospels and all the Bible. But I would argue Solomon, for all of his wisdom, was quite stupid and sinful. Those aren't the same. But he was both. He was incredibly wise, incredibly accomplished, and yet, in conflict with God's law, that's important, he simply took a pile of wives and a bunch of concubines, a thousand total. And in the end, we see that at the end of his life, they were instrumental in turning his heart away from the Lord and toward false gods. I would argue that 
Solomon didn't find a wise woman because he never actually looked for one wisely. I would also say that verse 28 is more of a commentary on Solomon than it is on the women he knew. Because you could be tempted to go, I couldn't find any wise people, but Solomon's wise, no. As king, he objectified women and at least a thousand women foolishly led him. But a wise woman would never agree to that, but more than that, a godly king would never demand or desire that. So what you see in this is like, man, Solomon did you're sinful. You're just as foolish as the fools you talk about. And essentially, he has just created an umbrella, intentionally or not, that all men, all women, including himself, are lost. And they've all chosen this path. They didn't fall on it accidentally. Relative to our relationship with God and the sin in our lives, we are not victims. We are victimizers of God. And what's worse, we're blame shifters. We look at the brokenness of this world, the brokenness of our lives, the brokenness of everything, and we go, God, what did you do? Or what didn't you do? Guess what? That's what happened in Genesis chapter 2. Sorry, 3. Right? God walks in and goes, Adam, where are you? Like he didn't know. Adam, where are you? Opportunity confess. Adam, where are you? Right here, hiding. Why are you hiding? Well, we're naked. Who told you you were naked? Like all these opportunities to respond. Did you eat from the tree I told you not to eat from? And he said, what? The woman. But that's not it. The woman that you gave me. Oh, wow. Wow. Right? Like the kid, like, did you, did you drive the car when I told you not to and then crash it into that pole? Well, the car you gave me. Like, well, wait a second. We're blame shifters. We cannot and should not blame God for the condition of the world or our lives right now. I would argue that our lives are way more than we deserve and much better because of Him. And although it seems most things escaped Solomon's wisdom, he even says that. He's like, I couldn't find it out. It was too deep for me. I didn't find it out. He says in like the last verse, this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. He is not to blame. God made it good, we broke it. And when we broke it, without doubt, God cursed it, but God now is the only one who had a plan and can redeem it. And so we take responsibility, which is one of the biggest problems in our world today. No one wants to take responsibility. Everyone wants their rights. No one wants responsibility. Everyone wants to lay blame because it's easy to do that. No one say, actually, it's my fault. I did this. I've contributed to this. So we're supposed to, Solomon, like, God didn't do it. God made it upright. Okay, I'm going to take responsibility. But guess what? Even in all your wisdom, you can't fix it. 
It's tempting to believe you can, and even Solomon says, well, this is a better way to live, but you can't fix it. The middle way between those two ditches is a mystery because it comes through God's revelation, particularly through His Son, Jesus Christ. The one who is greater than Solomon. This is the deep wisdom that comes by revelation. God's wisdom that is completely foolish to men because you say, man, the world is broken and most people, yeah, I see that. Man, people are evil. Yeah, I see that. Man, I'm really screwed up. Maybe, okay, yeah. You you know the answer? Yeah, more education. Better laws. No, it's Jesus. Jesus is the way. And they go, Jesus? <laughs> the guy who died on the cross and supposedly rose from the dead? That silly, foolish story? Do we understand what I mean when I say God's wisdom is foolish to men? And that the way to salvation comes through revelation and not just figuring it out? That's what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved by it, it's the power of God. How many have friends, how many of yourselves have said like, man, what changed in your life? And you go, Jesus. Jesus rescued me. If that's not how you view your salvation, it's possible you're not saved. Because what is The foolish story, crazy story has become or should have become the way. He says, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the sermon of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. We preach the cross. We preach Jesus forgiving sins through His death, redeeming sinners through His death, offering cleansing of shame through His death and giving you the newness of life through His resurrection. See, the road between self-indulgence and self-righteousness is actually a place of self-denial. It's the road of Christ. Because Christ doesn't come and say, hey, I'm going to offer you a better life. Just live this way. He says, no, I'm going to give you an entirely new one. Just believe. An entirely new life. If you will put your faith, if you will trust that I died on the cross for your sins, that I rose from the dead for you, I will give you a brand new life that you can walk in, not just a better one that's improved to fall again. You see, when we admit that we are fools, and we surrender to God, that's where salvation comes. Wisdom is not pretending that you are strong. It's actually admitting that you are weak and in need of Jesus' grace. Wisdom is not finding your own way, but admitting that you're lost and asking for Jesus' help all the time. Wisdom is not pretending that you are good, but admitting that you're bad. Worse than others, would ever know and probably worse than you could ever admit yourself and you are depending on Jesus' goodness alone for your salvation. You get to a place, and I think this is kind of funny to think about, where you go, God actually only saves sophomores. Like, what's a sophomore? A wise fool. 
I'm wise enough to see how foolish I am and that I need a Savior. And that's anyone who's saved here or should be because guess what? I hope you wouldn't say this. You didn't come to salvation going, you know what? I was saved because one day I was pondering under the apple tree and I thought to myself, this makes a lot of sense. The Son of God coming down to die for my sin, raising from the dead. I think I'm going to intellectually assent to that and believe. I'm glad that I figured out. Other people need to figure this out. I don't know what's wrong with them. Like, That's not what happened. And I'll close with how Paul describes all of us. In speaking to the Corinthians, reminding them of that truth, he says, consider your calling. When Christ called to you, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. That's a really clever way of going. You guys were a little dumb, right? A little foolish. The world thought you were like, not so great. He goes, not many were powerful. You guys are pretty weak. Not many of noble birth. Like, it's not like you guys were like the, you know, A-team. He says, but God chose you. He chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. Chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. Chose what is low and despised in the world. He's talking about them and Christ. Even the things that are not to bring to nothing the things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, who became wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification redemption, so that it is written... Let one who boasts, boast in the Lord. If you are not saved, I want to tell you, quite simply, many people refuse to put their faith in Christ because they think, I'm not good enough. I haven't done enough. I am not wise enough. You're ready. Because I'll tell you the secret of everyone here, and if you don't believe this, you ought to remind yourself of this. You are not special. You were made special by Christ. You are not strong. You were made strong by Christ. You are not rich. You were made rich by Christ. You are not lovable, but you were made lovely and made able to love because of Christ. He has done it all. You didn't figure it out. He chased you down, you foolish little sophomore, and he loved you. We are sinners saved by grace. Never forget that. Amen? Let's pray.